afternoon, and welcome to the Hilliard Beacon Audio Companion, issue number 23. That seems right. Something like that. that. As you can hear, I'm joined by my good friend Tim Hoffman. Hey now. And we're here as usual with Kevin Corvo as well. Good afternoon. But some new voices in the conversation, adding to Mike's uh, Mike Confusion 4 and 5, are uh, Cynthia Vermillion, council person from the city of Hilliard. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you for Thank coming. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Dan Rowley, your title, Dan, yeah, your Dan. specific title? Uh, assistant City Manager. Assistant City Manager. You've been here since 2020, correct? Uh, 21. 21. Beginning of 21. Very good, very good. Thank you for coming. Dan. Thank you for Thank coming. You. What do you all think of the digs? It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting little studio space okay. we have here. Thanks for joining us. This is a cool space. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. I was going to say, from the outside, you'd never, ever know. <laughs> we hope to kind of keep it that way. Keep, keep, keep a low profile. I won't disagree with you, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it does. It does belie uh, a different uh, interior than its exterior. That's for sure. But uh, we're having everyone in today to have a good conversation around several topics. Uh, one of which we're going to start off with is the new electric aggregation agreement uh, that the city of Hilliard is participating in. We just recently started to find the uh, initial response to that, the initial uh, buy-in. And the great thing about this rollout was that there was no buy-in because by vote it was decided that we would all opt in. And if you wanted to get out of this agreement, you could opt out. I got a very nice, uh, clearly uh, worded piece of paper in the mail several weeks and months ago uh, describing all the changes. And I think uh, locking in a rate for a term of two years, given all the energy volatility we've had, is a sensible option. I just wanted to get your um, kind of feedback on it in these initial phases of implementation. Cynthia, this has been an issue for you. Since I recall, we were sitting in an olive garden, I think somewhere in Upper Arlington, as a matter of fact, uh, and we met with a friend that talked about uh, electric aggregation and potentially using it as a campaign issue way back when we were both running for office. So, I mean, you, I can see by the look on your face, you're searching your memory. <laughs> but uh, it's, been, it's been part of the conversation for a long time, and it's recently come to fruition. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and the role that council played and the role that the city's taken with this? Absolutely. Um, well, it's an important tool that we as residents of Ohio have, and only nine, 10 states have this ability for localities to aggregate energy on behalf of their residents and smaller businesses. So uh, it's an important tool as we see with the recent increase of energy prices from AEP. It's an important tool for a locality to be able to have, to be able to insulate their residents from you know, huge price hikes like we are just seeing right now. Um, so back in 2021, I actually started the process by going through the Environmental Sustainability Commission. I had uh, a guest speaker there to explain about energy aggregation to them. At that point, they wanted to see how things turned out with Columbus and Grove City who had just passed it in November of 2020. And so um, I gave them that year to take a look at what it was like. And I came back beginning of 2022 and said, um, what do you think? And so we had another guest speaker come. And at that point, they felt comfortable with uh, pr proceeding with 
the, the process of taking it to council. And so um, legislation, well, first we had a committee of the whole meeting where we discussed it. Legislation was subsequently prepared and then council took a vote, it passed six to one. And then the voters, of course, have to approve it because it's a charter change allowing the city to, to aggregate the energy. And so the citizens passed it um, over 62%, by over 62%. Strong, mm -hmm. strong. I remember that being generally agreed upon. I think that uh, as, a, as a system, it, it makes sense. We've seen a lot of labor unions very active through the summer and these last years coming out of COVID. It only makes sense to make use of bulk buying in the ways that you can create advantages in these markets. And you say, hey, we're all in. We will guarantee uh, energy buying through you for this large number of people. And then that allows people to expand their offering and, and, and make those guarantees. So it's agreements, it's trust building. I think it's a good mechanism. My, my question would be, where do you see the next steps for growing a conscientious energy usage program in the city as a as a as a full spectrum uh, offering because this can only be the beginning we've seen devastating climate change effects we've seen scientific uh reports that indicate that we have a limited timetable to act and make significant changes and we know that locally we have some mechanisms to do certain things and to make certain progress. So what I'm wondering is where do you see this program going in the future as far as aggregation, but also as a city offering, is there anything in the way of municipal power? Well, I don't think those discussions have taken place yet. I know Westerville has their own utilities that, that they run and operate. I think that's a, a much larger undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, I, I personally would like to see more renewable energy here provided locally and what that would look like I'm not quite sure we haven't actually entered into those discussions but mm. but it would be awesome to have our own locally sourced renewable energy for our city right and what's that oh sorry Tim go uh, ahead. what sources for renewable do you see uh, going up in Hilliard uh, solar probably mostly solar um, um, Statewide, there are some really strong prohibitions against wind energy because of setbacks. I think there's a significant uh, legal framework that's at the state level of the legislature that keeps that uh, held in check. It, it feels like that's the case, but I, I could look into that for everybody. <laughs> I think it's important to remember that um, there are a variety of communities around Ohio that have done aggregation programs and gone to the ballot and been successful to get those programs established, but there are less than a handful that have actually done that and said that it needed to be a green energy uh, program by default. And Hilliard is a little bit different than other communities around central Ohio or even around the state uh, in how we have approached the aggregation program. Uh, because the ballot language itself uh, said that this needed to be a green energy program uh, first and foremost. We are offering a, a traditional brown option to residents. You've probably Minimal seen that. Minimal savings of 66 mm -hmm. uh, cents or 69 cents. I mean, it's mm -hmm. negligible. Right. But as, as you're um, perhaps inferring in your question, that the source of that power is not something that's in Ohio right now. It's right. being generated in Texas and in Oklahoma right. uh, through wind. 
So uh, and I think it's really appropriate for us to aspire to, for those sources of power to come locally as well. I know that Swaco uh, is talking with the city of Columbus about utilizing one of the old landfill properties to site solar. Um, Bexley, uh, I think, has been active in some of those uh, discussions as well. But we just don't have enough locally generated um, renewable sources uh, for us to be able to draw on directly. Right. As a friend of ours that used to come into the shop all the time and would engage us in long conversations about the good, the bad, and the ugly of you know, changing the grid over to different kinds of, you know, the, the man, the myth, the Doug. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd come in and bend your ear about all the things that needed to come along, needed to come along. Well, one of those things is the durability that comes along with local production, excess production, surplus production. And until you get there, you can only get so far. And I think, like you say, there are clear-cut benefits to an electric aggregation agreement just as it's structured, especially with the language as it is now, because it insists on green energy and that's supported by the markets that are emerging now as far as growth uh, for those kind of things. But um, locally, I think we're going to need more. I think mm-hmm. we need to maybe even talk about uh, that municipal component creating some type of Hilliard legacy program where this farmland can be repurposed, uh, you know, keeping people's preferred land uses in mind instead of waiting for the developer's uh, bulldozer. Maybe we get proactive and talking to people with large tracts of land around the area that might be interested in having a lasting legacy in that way. But again, as you say, those kind of conversations are all in the opening stages, if anything, but uh, they're conversations that now that the aggregation plan is in place can uh, move forward and think about uh, new uh, approaches and and next steps. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's been... uh, And we also have a lot of rooftop space that we can take a look at. I was going to say, I see a lot of ads now. I see a lot of individual selling. I see a lot of independent selling. I think, you know, again, a, muni- a municipal approach would be beneficial. And as far as uh, you standardize the systems and the arrays that are being put in, you standardize how they tie into the grid, you standardize how they feed into the grid, all that stuff matters. So the quicker the city can move forward and giving that public offering or that public option, I would be uh, you know, in full support. And, uh, passing 60% approval in, in the actual vote, I think that means that there's still room to go with pushing forward. We worked pretty hard about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, to simplify the permitting process. Uh, there's an organization called SoulSmart that advocates for um, renewable sources of electricity, and in particular uh, trying to simplify the permitting process for solar panel installations. And so if you go on the city's uh, website right now, you'd see a pretty simple uh, way that you can apply for solar panel installations. And I was really struck uh, since the 1st of June, I, we just looked at this a uh, week or two ago, we'd had 65 applications since the 1st of June for solar panel installations in Hilliard. So nice. what you're referring to, somebody is knocking on doors or there's contact being made, but it was a pretty striking number. Yeah, and if you're getting that kind of permitting uh, feedback, then you know that maybe the demand is there to uh, invest in it at the city level. That might be an indicator. But again, it's nice to have that um, data for sure that tells people that there there is a rate of adoption happening. Um, moving on from that a little bit, uh, we, we're getting into some of the uh, appointed commission deadlines that we're seeing emerge from some uh, city bulletins that have come out recently, and I know Kevin's uh, 
been interested in, in kind of dialing in how this is uh, expanding. We've got planning and zoning commission openings and review commission openings uh, coming up with a deadline of September 8th, and that's a critical commission. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the role that the those two commissions play in Hilliard and how uh, they are essentially that first step in the development cycle? Yeah, and if you could uh, sort of delineate what the differences are between the two, because oh, they, you. Yeah, yeah. they sound, you look and read them, and I thought maybe they'd copy and pasted the same thing into the email twice, but it's two mm -hmm. different committees, mm -hmm. or one's a committee and one is... Two different commissions. Commissions. Uh, so in simple terms, uh, planning and zoning is reviewing all new development that is being proposed uh, in Hilliard. So that's the commission that uh, does the first review of lots of different new buildings, uh, um, businesses, and structures in Hilliard. So uh, they're reviewing all sorts of things from uh, new subdivisions to commercial buildings that might be proposed. And um, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting uh, as a commission. Uh, typically when you see an agenda on a monthly basis, they might have um, 10 to 12 items that they're reviewing at a given meeting. Um, and, and really it gives you a window uh, if you're a board or commission member there or you're following that meeting uh, closely, um, it gives you a window into what's coming in the community. Uh, board of Zoning Appeals is the other body that's accepting applications right now. And it tends to be, just in really simple terms, variances to our code. So if you, for example, uh, needed to cite a fence in your backyard, uh, but it didn't exactly con uh, conform with what our regulations are in a zoning uh, aspect, you might go to the Board of Zoning Appeals to say, given these hardships, I would like to do uh, to, to install a fence in a way that doesn't quite comply with what the written code is today. And sure. they can offer a variance to that. So when I first uh, leased this space, the idea was to uh, put retail in here. And so I would have had to go and get a conditional zoning change. So that would, that would have been the board that I would have talked Potentially, to. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, we put that on, we put that on uh, hold immediately after I signed the lease Following up on what Dan said, most of my mm -hmm. coverage centered on the Planning and Zoning Commission. When Max and Ernest changed the sheets, that went through Planning and Zoning first before it got to City Council. When they wanted to put Swenson's on Cemetery Road, that went to Planning and Zoning. So they do see some very important things, consider some very important things, and their recommendations are what go on to City Council. Mm -hmm. um, well, putting gas tanks in the ground and things like that are a lot different. Pulling a grease trap out. Uh, that's a that's a slightly larger expense to correct cost correct uh, if anything should go wrong in that regard. Yeah, that's interesting. We talked a little bit before we went on air about the kind of unique situation that the multiple openings are presenting. You've got applications. You're you're still accepting applications through the eighth, and that may potentially expand. That deadline may lengthen uh, depending on the the amount of applications you get and in the, in the rapidity with which people accept or get screened or screened out or whatever how will that process play out in in like terms of just pure process people would be here come the applications they'll be reviewed when i anticipate the council uh and i'll defer to cynthia on this but uh will review those applications uh some of that is done in executive session um, typically, the process that's been followed has been interviews. Uh, each, you know, the candidates that they're interested in is invited in for an interview. And then council makes a 
termination in an open meeting about the appointment uh, itself. These terms don't end until the end of the year, so there's a little bit of time, I think. Um, but the large volume of vacancies, I think, is going to um, cause this process to, it needs to start a little bit earlier, and it needs to be, um, we need to spend a little more time on it. And from a city side of things, there might be an educational component there just to make sure all these brand new committee members running or organized meetings and, and operating to a new city standard. As I mean, you're, you're being brought in in 2021 is kind of a testament to the evolution that the city of Hilliard has gone through as far as the professionalization of the administration mm -hmm. of the city services and the city offices. These commissions are part of that. Mm -hmm. You're responding to charter language changes that have kind of, we discussed, maybe put the situation in a little bit of flux. Um, speaking more to those charter language changes, there, was never, there wasn't even an option for council to uh, meet an executive session to discuss some of these things when some of those charter changes went into place. So can you talk about the, the role you've played in the process of kind of modernization of the administration over the course of the last couple of years and maybe how COVID played a role in all that? Um, it's not me personally. I mean, I think uh, ultimately these things have been driven by city council and the community, but uh, obviously it's just three and a half years ago that Hilliard um, changed from a strong mayor to a council manager form. Um, and so there are a whole series of um, maybe behind the scenes changes that have occurred as a result of that change in form of government. And uh, I think Michelle Crandall as the city manager, uh, perhaps my, my role, uh, I oversee community development and um, the engineering staff and building standards that are reviewing a lot of the new developments is, is part of that. Um, most of what I'm focused on behind the scenes is trying to make the experience for residents better or the experience for customers of ours to be better. So improving the permitting process, for example, and making sure that that is a, um, a process that works well for people that are trying to do new development. Um, those things are evolutionary and they continue to change today, um, but making sure that we're providing good level of services to people that we're interfacing with on a regular basis is is a big part of what I'm doing. So I don't know if you want to talk at all, Cynthia, about the, the changes that have been going on in city government or not, if that's what you're referring to. I know a lot of uh, effort has been put into the 311 program to make sure that they're very responsive when you see a pothole, when, when you see anything else that's amiss in the city, you can report it. And I, I understand that they're very responsive very quick. Hmm. Uh, I did want to make one comment about the planning and zoning. Um, Please go ahead. Members, I know that there is a plan to to do more intensive uh, training of people who are on these very important commissions so so that they they understand exactly, you know, what what their role is and 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 how they should carry out their role as a, a member of these commissions. Sure. Uh, where does that training come from? Who provides that kind of training for folks? Does that come from MORPSI, or are there other organizations that, that uh, provide that kind of training? I know there are other organizations um, as well that provide, and Dan might know more about uh, this than, than I do. Yeah, we're looking to contract with um, uh, some consulting entities that have done this kind of training in other communities. They typically have a planning background, okay. um, and um, that's maybe one half of the training. The other half is um, 
understanding that you're now part of a public body, uh, public records law, how to uh, conduct a public meeting, what some of the limitations are on that, um, because it's something new for many people when they step into that role. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, no one's born knowing how that stuff works. And that's an important <laughs> part of community service, too, is that when you do feel that desire to serve is that you're enabled to serve in a competent capacity so that you can feel proud of that work that you're putting in and you're volunteering with your time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's critical. And I'm glad to hear that there's a lot more uh, behind the scenes training going on. Um, talking specifically about uh, some of the things that I saw in some of the implementation in the community plan, it was interesting. Uh, we're heading into election season. Um, and there have been uh, some developments. There have been the opening uh, campaign videos and campaign uh, salvos, fire, all the cliches you want to say, the horse races started, et cetera. We're hoping to have people in for one-on-one -on -one interviews where they can talk about their platform and all those type of things. And Cynthia, we've talked about electric aggregation, and I hope to have uh, somebody like Tina Catone in to talk about the Aging in Place Commission because I know that was a critical issue for her, and it's a commission that's now coming into existence, and it's providing a lot of value uh, to people that are on that path. I think that uh, I saw recently there was an interesting update to the transportation uh kind of offering from the city is that they're more openly touting the 55 and over uh, appointment transportation plan that they have through the city now, which is an interesting offering. Where do you see that growing and developing? What do you see kind of happening in regards to those things? Uh, is there, a, as the city grows and as the city brings on these changes, there are things that are going to have to happen. And I think this aging in place is part of it. And I think that is a lot of what this election is going to be about, what kind of city Hilliard is going to be for the people that live here now and for the people that are hoping to join our community and how they're going to join our community. So what do you, what do you think as an opening impression? Well, uh, specifically with the Hilliard Express, which is the yeah. transportation for the 55 plus, um, that is something that's been around actually now for several years. I think we started it, was it 2020 or 2021? Mm -hmm. It was very early on when I started on mm -hmm. on council, and uh, it started out with, with grant money, and I was a huge proponent of it because I believe solidly that we need to take care of our population that is aging in Hilliard. And so sometimes part of those uh, effects of aging are that you can't necessarily drive anymore. Um, and so you need to have a way to get get around safely to, to the store, shopping, to the doctor, all, all those things. So. I think as a community, it's important to be able to support those efforts. And as we don't have anything more really substantive from a local community transportation option, like with regular routes and things of that nature yet at our growth path and all those things is how the city's grown over the years. It's interesting. This is a stopgap of sorts. Um, how far would you say we are to capacity with the present service? Do you feel like there needs to be an expansion in the immediate future, or maybe that could be an election issue? I don't think we're in need of expansion at this point. Um, it, it's being used, mm -hmm. I know that. I, I don't know the latest numbers. We haven't had a report lately. I haven't seen those either. Um, okay. But um, I know well, during nice, COVID gloss, it was rough. A glossy feature in the magazine will probably help the uptake on the use a little bit, for sure. And then as we talk about it in places like this, and as it becomes more widely used, I think, uh, 
if it's regularly pulling up to some of these senior living facilities that have been developed in the area, uh, it's, it'll definitely uptake. So, sure. And I've seen the van around. Yes. Yeah. And it started during COVID. And, and so obviously a lot of people were afraid to be out in public at that point, especially with the older group. And so, sure. you know, so it's, it did start out slowly, but, right. but it is coming up for sure. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know, I guess I want to get into this uh, campaign video issued by Councilperson Tarazi and Councilperson Carrier. And Dan, I know as a as an employee of the city, I don't know how much you want to have any kind of uh, conversation about this type of stuff and uh, as an administrator I know that your role is to is to function in a certain capacity so I don't want to make you feel like you're in any way on the spot or anything like that but um, I think we're here we're talking about stuff like this and uh, it's interesting that I feel from my perspective and I said this in a previous uh, piece of audio that we produced is that this video it's not the type of construction that I want to see in local politics. Local politics uh, geared towards the positive. Local politics geared towards uh, people accepting and understanding that we live in a community and that change is part of living in a community. And that the way to um, be a part of that is to get involved. Uh, I think that video makes that request. I think it wants people to get involved, but I think it wants people to get involved from a point of fear-based reaction. And I'm afraid that it makes use of a couple devices that I find pretty um, insulting to a process that the 166-page community plan speaks to, uh, having been developed over time. And I think that device is time compression. Uh, when you look at section seven of the community plan that talks about implementation, it goes, deep into detail about the length and the time frame for almost every phase of these plans. It goes into detail about how the community plan is to develop concurrence with commissions and boards uh, so that the language that city administrators and people that are serving in the community use is uh, plays together on the same field. I think that what brought a lot of people to the table of we need a city manager we need to move away from the strong mayor form of government was the sense that it was personalities playing games of checkers driven not by market considerations or community considerations but personal considerations uh, and I would hate to see us take a step back uh, to that type of public interaction so that's my piece on the piece that being said you're heading into an election season for your seat how is it running a second time compared to the first time in this environment? Ah, good question. It's definitely a lot more political this time around. Um, obviously, I have the advantage of being an incumbent, so I know more about the, the, the state cities. of the city, what's yes, going yes. on right now. Cities yeah. inner workings. Um, but I was looking back at. Uh, our Rotary Club uh, and Chamber in interviews back in 2019, and the tone was so completely different b back then. It was more it was more positive. Everybody talked about collaborating and working together. Mm -hmm. And uh, this time around, it's basically um, attacking, and that does not do any good for the people of Hilliard, for sure. 
Yes. So what Tim Roberts <laughs> said resonated with you when he withdrew from the Norwich Township race. Yes, I understood exactly what he was talking about, even though I wanted him to stay in the race. Um, he, you know, he's done excellent work at the township. Um, but I, I can understand it is wearing on people. It's, uh, it's difficult to work in that environment. More gets done when we talk to each other in civil ways and in collaborative ways. That is exactly how Andy Teeter and I got the non-discrimination ordinance passed in 2021. It wasn't by criticizing our, our fellow conservatives on, on council. It was by, by talking to them, talking through their issues, through what, you know, what problems they had with it and explaining things. And, and then it passed six to one. Right. I recall those deliberations. They, they seem to focus on what we could and couldn't do and should or shouldn't we, as opposed to, um, you know, the coming together to just make a declarative statement uh, that all people are equal under the law, uh, regardless of these emerging classifications that people want to use, uh, and that that needed to be put into city language so that city could conduct business in a way that didn't have any kind of chilling effect on potential future growth, potential future recruitment, and you know, making Hilliard a comfortable place to live for anyone at all. I think that's uh, proposition number one when you're trying to maintain a community is you got to make people feel welcome. So, uh, Dan, could you speak a little bit to the community, the state of the community, how people are feeling about the job the city's doing, what kind of engagement the city is seeking when it comes to how the changes and how people are perceiving the work that's getting done? Sure. I, I think maybe um, it's appropriate to also talk about the um, some of the specifics of the community plan itself. I'd I mean, I think to, it's, I'd love to it's get no um, probably secret to uh, any of you um, that the community has changed a lot in the last 20 or 25 years. There's been tremendous growth in the community. But as you look at some of the areas um, in Hilliard, um, and I guess I should go back a half step and say one of the big ideas that came out of the community plan was that we should start to focus our growth inward rather than continuing to expand westward, uh, particularly into the big Derby region. And that's a big change. Um, I think there was a time, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but I think there was a time probably in Hilliard's history that all growth was seen as good growth um, mm -hmm. by, by some and I think being more selective about that development and looking uh, inward and redeveloping some areas of the community is a big uh, change in the focus of it's out of coming out of the plan. So if you look at Cemetery Road, for example, um, and some of the retail that's along uh, Cemetery Road, it, it's really an entrance into our community off of I-270. And we heard loud and clear um, from steering committee members, from members of the public that were part of the public input process. Some of you may have been at the event at Crooked Can where we were gathering input, um, but they did pop-ups at various events around the community as well. Cemetery Road doesn't look like a very welcoming entrance to many people. Um, and they said, we should look at ways to improve the Cemetery Road corridor. Well, there's aging retail on one side of the road. Um, there are uh, single family homes along the other side of the road. And part of what the plan is addressing are ways that we can start to reimagine that corridor in a way that um, perhaps makes it a more attractive entrance into our community. Same thing is true along I-270. Uh, if you look at the Verizon parking lot today, I'm just guessing you might find two dozen cars 
the building is is probably 90% empty and uh, it's such a large building that we're going to have to look at redevelopment of that site. We're not going to probably find a single tenant uh, to occupy that whole building when Verizon eventually says that they don't want to own that structure anymore. And so how do we redevelop a site like that along I-270? It, it's a problem not just in Hilliard, but frankly, communities across the country uh, are facing right now with suburban office uh, buildings. Those office users, which have traditionally been the bread and butter for um, communities in Ohio where income taxes um, generated by, by where you work, not where you live, um, that is those office users are looking for what we call amenities. They're looking for mixed use sites where they can locate in a, an area like Bridge Park or in the case of BMW uh, Financial, which moved from Hilliard to Grandview uh, in, the midst, in the mix of a mixed use uh, development where there's not only residential, there are some restaurants, there's going to be a small uh, market down there as well. They are looking for these amenity rich sites. And we think that in the case of at least I-270, we need to adjust our zoning code in a way that allows us to have a range of mix of uses so that we can attract those office users in the future. Um, that's a big change, right? And part of those um, mix of uses is residential, um, is apartments. Uh, you see that. Um, the question is um, within a mixed use development, is that um, perhaps um, something that could be leveraged in a positive way for us to uh, continue to have office users that, that pay the bills, frankly, for all the infrastructure that the city has. Um, that's the process that um, we're going to be embarking on. Th um, coming out of the community plan, the next step really is to look at zoning code changes. And those zoning code changes will not just go through city council, but they'll go through the planning commission um, uh, and then come back to city council. Uh, for final review. Doesn't mean that those changes are going to happen tomorrow at all. Um, you know, if you look at a community like Upper Arlington, they actually passed zoning code changes 20 years before some of the changes that you're seeing on Lane Avenue and Kingsdale. You have uh, to today. have more than one set of hands bringing these developments to any kind of fruition. And the idea that internal development, in, inward facing growth, where you actually have to do actively redevelop sites and do all that kind of stuff is going to happen overnight. It's just not in keeping uh, with reality. I mean, even the most rapidly transforming situations, and Tim often cites the pressed-in nature of, like, Fifth Avenue as you close in on mm -hmm. uh, the, the more downtown sections of Columbus uh, and potentially uh, even Upper Arlington as you head down Lane Avenue, where they've grown up around the street level and kind of developed off the other side of uh, that shopping plaza, kind of similarly in the nature that would likely happen in Hilliard if things were to go in those patterns, is that you would have a range of mixed use along the frontage of the road, and then in behind uh, you would offer additional transit corridors and further development in those neighborhoods. And in this community plan, it's not just talking about dropping in huge amounts of apartments it's talking about discussing breaking up the zoning blocks that have dominated hilliard in these chunks and sections for decades and decades um one of the things i'm most excited about is the potential for um, multi-family housing built within existing single-family zone neighborhoods potentially using existing sites so someone 
uh, has a home uh, in a small neighborhood that is on a smaller parcel, but it's a home that's from the 50s or the 60s or the 40s, and it's in a various state of repair or what have you, you scrape that site, you develop two units there or some type of small three-unit multifamily housing, and suddenly you have something that's in keeping with the neighborhood and not at all incongruous with the living situation of everybody else around, and you've added utilities, taxpayers, and all sorts of things in line with uh, what's already happening. And you're adding a range of housing types that might not exist today. Uh, And that's one of the other themes that we heard loud and clear uh, in the community plan, that we needed to offer a range of different housing options for residents, not just to stay here, but also obviously to attract new residents to the community. Right. I just wanted to throw in too, because I know there's some fear out there based on these videos that there that people like an older housing stock are going to be thrown out of their homes. That can be farther from the truth. Mm. Obviously, this has to do with I'm living in my home. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to sell. Well, and I think honestly, the situation now that a lot of people that are have been in their homes for a long time and that have owned their homes now even or are close to owning their homes. They're more concerned about rising values and appreciations and increasing tax bills that come along with a house that was purchased in 1960, paid off, and now valued several hundred thousand dollars over its original price. And hopefully people have done well for themselves and are able to keep up with those bills. But that is more a contributing factor to a gentrification that you see in suburban communities where people get pushed out of places where they've owned for decades Uh, because they can't afford to stay there anymore. If you introduce a range of housing options all across the scale, whether it's apartment living, condos, in single-family offerings or what have you, you'll bleed that price down across the whole city. Um, That's the goal anyway. The other problem that we have to meet head-on is, uh, as Hilliard is a desirable place to live, if we are not increasing the number of housing units we have here for people to move into, we're going to have a, 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 and it's already very, very difficult for a young family to get into a, a starter home in Hilliard. It's become extremely expensive uh, to get to get in here. Uh, so without providing ways for us to have more places for people to live, those prices will continue to rise and it will continue to be more and more difficult uh, for people who want to send their kids here to live here. Yeah, they won't have to worry about aging in place if you can't keep recruiting new people to age in place. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a whole spectrum of things. We've, we've studied some of the demographics going through the Hilliard City Schools right now, and it looks as though the population bubble has already passed. Uh, the mass of largest classes is there and moving through the system right now. And the, the groups of students in the younger grade levels are not going to replace them. Uh, in the current housing model. So obviously, if we want to continue uh, supporting and and having the services of all these great public schools that we've built over the years, we need to bring in more uh, youth populations to utilize them. Uh, Otherwise, they won't get utilized. Well, and we see a direct connection, I think, um, between the the ability to offer housing for young, younger people and the ability to attract and retain employers that um, having that housing available is one of the ingredients that allows us to attract employers to Hilliard in a way that's going to be important to us long term. 
Um, that was the original genesis of the idea behind Bridge Park was that they had a whole range of employers around the I-270 corridor, Cardinal Health, for example, but they were having trouble attracting employees uh, to work at some of those businesses because they didn't have housing that was really affordable for them. Right. Um, I don't think that the reality of Bridge Park actually worked out quite that way. Uh, uh, it tends to be a little bit older, I think, than what they anticipated initially and a little bit more expensive. But um, the intent was there to try and address a range of housing types, not not just for doing it, but to allow uh, employers within that area to attract employees. Well, if you look at the range of housing that's gone up over <coughs> the years over on Riverside Drive heading towards Bridge Park, you'll notice that it's all almost entirely built on that one side of the road up the hills, and it's mm-hmm. all aged uh, Mm -hmm. retirement communities and residences and various scales and starting in the mid whatevers Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, what is what is being built because that's that's the money that's there to buy it I think that creating a zoned environment that encourages all these different formats and uses will encourage different range of development and developers to enter the ecosystem and maybe you won't see large tracts of MI or Pulte or whatever anymore. You'll see individual people working individual projects, smaller companies interfacing with the government to create those easier zoning conditions and those uh, easier interactions with the code that would provide for some more of that growth and some more growth over time. So people see things changing over time and not in large chunks necessarily. I can't let it go the last thing I want to talk about. We need to talk about BMW Financial and the underlying mechanism that I think contributes to what's happening when BMW Financial not only leaves Hilliard to go somewhere else, but came from somewhere else to Hilliard (laughs) based on what? Based on tax increment financing, tax abatements. Uh, Tax increment financing is kind of at the heart of one of the core issues that brought me into this whole uh, larger political awareness when the city was passing or trying to get past issue nine. And a lot of people looked at issue nine as a very um, NIMBY kind of construction, which was keep Hilliard beautiful. We wanna restrict the ability of residential units to be put up using this very popular tax mechanism this very popular developer mechanism. My feeling is it's the developer mechanism that is the more dangerous component, not the residences, not a booming population or anything like that. Tax increment financing allows these larger entities to place 30-year bets with no guarantee of uh, full accountability along that whole timeline because uh, you don't know how the conditions over that timeline are going to change. If you look at the conditions we exist in from the time uh, Hickory Chase went under to now, the only thing that saved that from being a very unattractive hole in the ground was a very large tax increment financing package and municipal investment through the library and, and city involvement and all these other things. What I was most concerned about is there already exists a range of other developer incentives. What are some of the range of development incentives that we can use that might protect us from companies coming for a period of time, encouraging a large amount of city participation and investment and in the form of these agreements, these complex financial agreements? What can we do 
to attract sustained uh, company growth, sustained uh, settled growth that isn't contingent on the next abatement, that isn't contingent on the next tax giveaway? I think the, the macro answer to your question is we've got to make it a community, and I think it already is, that is attractive for people for lots of different reasons. They want to be in Hilliard because the schools are good. The, they want to be in Hilliard because they like the community generally, the housing uh, that's available. They like old Hilliard. And um, what we're seeing, obviously, is that uh, the community is, is growing rapidly and that many of the things that are here people really, really like about the community. You know, how that applies to a big multinational company and how they make business decisions about where they locate, a little bit different, different equation. Um, I think that, that's a, a tougher um, uh, road for us to hoe. Um, the specifics of the tools that are, that are being utilized are, um, if you look at the, the details of some of the um, subdivisions, for example, that have been constructed in Hilliard, is a new community authority where they're paying an extra millage, five mills, in most of those subdivisions um, and helping to defray the cost of that development, if that's where your question is headed. I will say, however, that the limitations on TIF, uh, specifically when we're talking about mixed-use development, is a, um, it's a major impediment to attracting mixed-use development. Um, the, the challenges that, that we've self-imposed as a community um, make it much harder to attract that kind of mixed-use development, which typically includes something like a parking structure, or it includes redevelopment on property, um, which is more expensive than, than building in a cornfield. Um, so, you know, I think we are a little bit different. If you look at the True Point development that was just approved, it does include TIF, but it was the first time that, that we've used that uh, in many years. Uh, in fact, it includes a second TIF um, in order to uh, make that, that whole situation whole for the township. Um, I, I think that, that is going to be a major impediment to us attracting new development uh, moving forward, even though I think that the limitations were passed with the best of intentions, that uh, it was being used inappropriately, um, that, that uh, Hilliard was, was applying it in some situations that it shouldn't have. But the reality is that it, it, it's put too, some challenges I, in place. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are other mechanisms, and I think that there's another other a patchwork, a quilt of CRA and all these mm -hmm. other things that might be able to uh, provide clawbacks and, and things of that nature. But also, I understand why, <laughs> uh, because it, it takes taxes out of the equation for the developer. And I think that's... That's got to be, well, it, it turns them into payments in lieu of, right? It's essentially like earmarking. They're still paying the same tax level, right? They're using a different mechanism to do it, but they're still paying the full rate of taxation. It just is being earmarked for things that go in as part of the public infrastructure for the development. Correct, correct. It's just as it's doing that, the the previous balance, the previous rate is being distributed to the other entities that were there getting that previous rate, like mm -hmm. Franklin County Board of Mental Health, et cetera, et cetera. Those things were democratically decided that they should be part of the tax package that envelops the whole of the region. And I think what I struggle with and what even people as conservative as uh, state auditor's office has said that there is way too much TIF density in Columbus in general as we've hustled around to do all this redevelopment 
that mechanism has been pushed. And I think it's kind of created a Swiss cheese effect on the tax blanket in general. And I think when people wonder why certain entities keep coming back to the public and asking for increases, that might be a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more people understand what developers get out of these mechanisms, the more people are hesitant to embrace them for their appropriate use. Because if you look at the history of TIF going back to the 60s and 70s when it was used in California to the point of being made illegal um, because it was misused in some of the ways that it's been misused in Columbus and in the Ohio area. Um, I just would say that uh, there are other means available now and that I think there are new means available to a city that will always be a city and that will hopefully always have a population uh, that can create new mechanisms and new rules. I, I would just say that the rules that Hilliard is playing by are different than every other community in central Ohio. Right, right. And that puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Competitive disadvantage, yes. But it also doesn't mean that we're contributing to an environment that increasingly... I mean, how many of these communities around central Ohio that accept TIF have even the limiting mechanism of township approval, school approval... School approval is part of state law. Um, now, no, as a it, result of? It has been for quite some time. Um, but the township is the unique element in Hilliard, for sure. Right. And that seems to be part of why we're seeing such hotly contested township races early on, is that people see that power element in controlling development in the city, I believe. So I think that there's a, a new dimension to that that I don't really think... Uh, I don't really think is, again, going to have the intended effect. Um, I enjoy the idea of collaboration between the schools and the township and the city, and I think an increase in recurrence of meetings and regular talks about regular affairs is extremely important. I think that the fact that um, in charter cleanup language, issue 25, they created this authority in the form of cleanup language uh, we now see that that's not just cleanup language. That's significant power that's been created. Yeah, and I think the end result, and we heard this as part of the community plan development, um, people want uh, more restaurant choices, for example, in Hilliard. Mm. Well, where are those restaurants locating in central Ohio? Uh, if you look, uh, many of the newest restaurants that people are interested in going to are located in mixed-use developments. Mm. Those mixed-use developments often had... Um, some incentives that were tied to um, their creation. It, it's it's not, you know, I think there are some um, secondary impacts of, of things that were done with the best of intentions that um, people don't necessarily like. Yeah, yeah. I have no doubt. Can I, you speak to how closely the, the development community is looking at these differences of opinion within our city um, concerning how TIFs are applied? Um, range of feedback from developers on why Hilliard are, are, are is Are developers or bad. watching our city council race and, and the township race and how this community plan will be put into the zoning code? In which manner will be put into the zoning code? How closely is the development commission? For sure. Development they're, community They're watching They're that? watching the tenor of the conversation for sure. Um, and unfortunately, um, that tenor isn't necessarily positive for uh, attracting the types of uh, development that we probably want in the community. Yeah, creates a chilling effect that isn't even a result of any of the actual official 
regulation. It's just something that people would rather not deal with. Uh, on the other side, you know, land, they don't make it anymore. Uh, so uh, we will definitely want to continue this at another time, but we've kept you almost a full hour at this point when I had only said we would be about 40 minutes. So I think we should probably wrap things up for the time being. Uh, Cynthia, the offer is hereby extended to have you back for a more election-focused interview where you can talk about the things that you want to run on and the things that you would like to uh, forward as part of your agenda. And I think that uh, people would be dying to hear it, and I, I'd be happy to bring that to them at any time. So we can work on that uh, as soon as you're ready. And, Dan, if um, your time has uh, not been wasted entirely here today, I know <laughs> Tim would love to have you as a, a maybe a, a helpful guide through the rest of our community plan series that we hope to get done uh, before the election comes out. Okay. And that would be uh, that would be another offering from the Hilliard Beacon. And uh, again, we're here just to provide uh, community information and news in as helpful a way as possible to uh, bring people the things that are happening and the things that are coming about as a result of the things that happened. And placing all that in a context lets people know that this is an ongoing process and that you're part of uh, developments that started long before you came to this city and will continue long after we have all aged in place. So uh, for us here at the, the Hilliard Beacon, I'd like to thank Dan Rowley for joining us today, and I'd like to thank Councilperson uh, Cynthia Vermillion for also joining us. Uh, please like our uh, videos, uh, audio productions, and Kevin's articles. Subscribe uh, to the free feed to get the majority of the community-centered information. We want to always make that part and the priority of our offering. And then uh, please, if you can, support us financially. It helps us keep uh, Kevin's unbroken record of 24 years of community reporting intact uh, and helps us to provide a community news platform I hope that we can all become increasingly proud of. So thank you again, uh, and thanks for coming out today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All thank right. you for having us. Great. Thanks, everyone.